Good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. Uh, we have a good crowd for Wednesday night. We're glad you're here. We're studying, as Brother Nathan mentioned, the book of Acts. And tonight we're looking at Acts chapter 6. And this is actually the shortest chapter in the book of Acts. Um, and we're going to spend the majority of our time on the first seven verses. So, because uh, that's where most of our teaching is going to be. Uh, we, the rest of it's sort of narrative, and it's going to be somewhat repetitive narrative, so we're not going to take a lot of time and just dive into those, because uh, it's just rather a rather simple narrative. But we do want to make sure that we look at some very important things in the book of Acts, because as we're seeing, the ministry is beginning to expand. And what I mean by that is if we look back through the first five chapters, the work that's being done is being performed by the 12 apostles. And... Namely, Peter and John are headed, uh, heading all this work. And as we see the churches begin to multiply, the Great Commission is beginning uh, to be fulfilled in their life. And we see thousands of people are now being converted to the church. And that's a great problem to have. But it did present a problem uh, because the church got so big, the apostles could no longer do all of the work that they were doing. And so that's... Where we're going to start tonight in our chapter, we're going to read for the first uh, six verses and then begin to look at those. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We will have the scriptures on the screen. Uh, there'll be one slide where the text may be just a touch smaller, uh, and I'll prepare you for that if you decide you want to turn. If you can't see that from the back, I apologize. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it says, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So I'm going to back up and we're going to look at some of, the, uh, of what's happening here, what's transpiring and the first thing that we notice in Luke's record here, he says, when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Now, that's obviously been happening, but I think in this particular instance, he's mentioning that for a reason. The church is getting so big that they're just getting overwhelmed with some of the work that they're doing. A big portion of the work that the church is doing is helping those who are needy. And so there's a great number of widows that are part of this daily distribution. That is, they're coming to a certain place and their needs are being taken care of. And it says there arose among the Hellenists a complaint. Now, the, the Hellenists were Greek Jews. They, they had a Greek background. And, and if you want to look at this this way, it, it probably is the case. There's some indications that maybe there's some cultural racism going on here that, that the uh, Hebrew Jews are being favored over the Hellenists Christians. These are all Christian converts, by the way. But I don't want us to think that the apostles are being racist. The, the, the real problem that we got here is the church is just getting too big, and they're not able to do a, a sufficient job of this daily distribution. And that's the problem that arises. 
And so it says the 12 summoned the multitude and they said it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now I think what's being indicated here is this. They're saying, okay, this is getting too big for us. And it's getting so big that it's going to take such, uh, it's going to be such a, a, a big responsibility for us that we're going to have to stop ministering in the word to do a sufficient job with this. And we can't do that. And so when they add these men to the ministry, when they expand the ministry, these men are helping them in this area to do what they have already been doing. Now, there's a couple of possibilities. One is the apostles are the ones doing the daily distribution. Another possibility is that there may be a group of other men who've been designated to do this. I would really go back to the former that the apostles were doing this. As we see, there's a common theme in Acts 4 and Acts 5 that they're taking their money and they're laying it at whose feet? They're laying it at the apostles' feet. But again, the job's getting too big. And so the solution that they come up with is find men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, and we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, we're going to dive back into that in just a little bit. But I want to break down some things from verse 3. Because there's some really important things in this that I want us to look at. Notice that they're looking for qualified men to do this job. Do you see that? They didn't just say, hey, find seven guys who you like. They said, we want you to find seven men, and we want them to have a good reputation. We want them to be full of the spirit and wisdom, qualified men. I believe these were the first deacons, the first deacons. And you say, well, why would you think these are the first deacons? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, the word serve tables is the word diakonos or diakonia. It might be diakonia, which is the same word that's used for deacon. And, and you say, well, that word's used all over the place. And that's true. It's used all over the place. But it's not just the word that's used there. It's the idea that these are appointed, qualified servants of the church. They're appointed, qualified servants of the church. They're not just men who are designed to do a certain job. They're qualified and appointed servants of the church. And we're going to dig into that in uh, just a moment. Uh, some might say, well, Ian, the qualifications are different for these men than they were in Timothy. Well, I think there's a couple of possibilities. One, of the, one possibility is that the qualifications look different because Luke is not giving a letter to an evangelist about all the qualifications that a person must meet to be a deacon. He's giving a narrative about events that unfolded. That's one possibility. The other possibility is this. Those qualifications were not yet revealed. Again, Paul is the one that gave those qualifications. This is a new office. They're going off of the Holy Spirit's direction here. And here's what they said. Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, if you look at the specific qualifications of a deacon, go study this in 1 Timothy 3. I'll, I'll tell you what you'll see. You'll see this right here. Not specifically those things, but that's the kind of men they were looking for. Men that were exhibiting wisdom, that were men of faith, men that were full of virtuous things, men of godliness, men that had a good reputation. Those are the type of men that we're looking at for deacons. So again, don't, don't get hung up on the, the more what we would say condensed list or broad list of qualifications here as they're really just more of a, a broad overview of what these men were to be. So there's three words I want to look at here, a point over in business. And, and I'm going to uh, color coordinate these things. So as you see, green and yellow on, and blue on the next few slides, that, those, they're that color for a reason. Everything we see in green is going to be about this word, a point. Everything in yellow about this word, over. And everything in blue about this word, business. You say, well, why are those words 
specifically important. Well, let's define the two words in green and yellow first. Because this is going to be very important for us to understand the work of deacons, the office of deacons. Okay, so here's the two words. This is uh, katha, and it's actually stay that has a long A sound. Katha, stay me. And it means to place down, to designate, or to constitute. We see this word translated as ordain or appoint many times in Scripture. And then we have the word epi, okay? Epi, which means superimposition. What superimposition means, it's like when you have a piece of paper and you lay a piece of paper on top of it. It's over something. Uh, this is the word where we get our word episcopal, which is the word that's translated bishop or overseer in Scripture. Episcope, watch over, look over. That's the same idea as elder. I'm not saying they're the same thing. I'm saying they have the same root word, the word over, okay? It's not episcope here. It's epi and then kathostami. So it's a point and over. You say, okay, you're getting really uh, harping on this thing. Okay, we're doing that for a reason. Because I want to see how these two words are used in conjunction with one another in other places in Scripture. And they're actually used 11 times. These two words are used together in scripture several times in the gospel when jesus says i will make you ruler over many things that is these two words epi and kathostami so there's a couple times in the book of acts that this word is used just in the next chapter and it doesn't necessarily relate to an elder or a deacon but i want to see how the words are used so we can understand what it means a point and over acts 7 verse 10 and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of pharaoh king of egypt and he made him governor over egypt and all his house. This is talking about Joseph. This is Stephen giving a sermon about Joseph. And here's the words that he used, okay? This is kathostami. This is epi. Here's what that means. The king of Egypt made, that's, ep, that's kathostami, him, Joseph, governor over Egypt. What does that mean? It means somebody with a high authority gave authority to someone else to have authority over something else. Do you see that? Someone who has authority, the king, <coughs> gave authority to Joseph over what? Something that belonged to him. Something specifically. So he had authority over something. That's the way that this word is used. Ruler over or made him over. That is the way that these two words are used in conjunction. Again, in the same chapter when we're talking about Moses. Do you remember when Moses went and, and he killed one of the Egyptians for for uh, hurting one of the Israelites? And then the next day he saw two of the Israelites fighting. And what did he say to them? He said, don't fight. And they said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You know what they're asking? Who appointed you to have authority over us? See, that's the way these two words are used for someone to have authority over something. And that's exactly the way it's used uh, in Acts chapter 6 when it talks about appointing them over business. Now, Notice also Hebrews 2, 7 relating to Christ, how those two words are used in conjunction. It says, you've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over, same two words, kathostami and epi, set him over what? The work of your hands. Who's this talking about? This is talking about Jesus. That God the Father set Jesus over the work of his hands, gave him authority and power over something. So I know we're getting repetitive. We're going to stop there. But I just want you to see there's a very common usage of these two words in conjunction that indicate two things. An appointment and authority by a higher authority. And so that's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 6. Now, we've got to deal with the word business. These men were appointed over business. What does the word business mean? Well, the word that's translated there, Korea, is only translated business one time in the entire New Testament. Just once. 
and it's in Acts 6. Every other time you'll notice it's translated lack, and it doesn't mean like lacking something. Uh, like we would say, well, it lacks. It's, it's that they should have no lack, which means that they should have nothing that they need. So there's lack once, necessity or necessary four times, needful, needed 40 times, or just the word need. Need, needful, or needed 40 times. You say, well, okay, why are you telling us that? Because look at what it's inherent to that Greek word. The idea of necessity. The idea of necessity. So when it says they were appointed over this business, understand the word business has in it the idea of something being a necessity. What's my point? My point is this. Deacons are appointed over affairs of the church that are a necessity. They're not appointed to do busy work. That's not the point of deacons. They didn't just appoint these seven guys so they could give them something to do. There was a necessary work that these men had to perform that was part of the ministry, and they found qualified men and appointed them over this necessity or this business, something that was a scriptural work. So the question often arises, well, can't anybody be a servant of the church? Yes. And if you're not a servant of the church, I want to encourage you, be a servant of the church. Serve the church. Does that make you a deacon? No. No, it doesn't. Well, can't anybody just, why do we need appointed servants? Why do we need appointed servants? So let's think about this. What is a servant? <laughs> it's someone who serves. But what authority do they have? What approval do they have? These men were chosen by many and appointed by a higher authority. They were chosen servants of the church. You know what that means? They're accountable. They have, an, they have a level of authority, but they're accountable to those that chose them and those who authorized them. Secondly, they were ministering and they were doing service. <laughs> the work is still the same, whether you're serving, a church, serving the church in that capacity. And, and, but here's the big one. Were they qualified? Why are these men qualified? Why do we have qualifications for deacons? Why do servants need to be qualified? Because they're not just servants. They're appointed servants with authority. You know why deacons need to be qualified? Because they have authority. That's why. They have authority. And that's how the word is used here. They're, they're made over something. Okay, let's go back to Acts 6 and 1 and let's look at this one time, uh, one other time. In those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected. Would you just throw seven volunteers over this business? This necessity? Hey, we need seven guys, just volunteer. Well, who's to say seven guys that we don't know that are qualified are going to do a fair job and not neglect these same women or maybe neglect other women? They wanted honest men who were godly men, who they knew would be trustworthy and fair so that they do a good job at being an appointed service, uh, appointed servant over something that was necessary. So let's also see the idea of being over something. Acts 28, 28, when it talks about elders, it says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. What are elders over? What are they over? The flock, aren't they? They're over the flock. That's where their job is, over the flock. Okay, now let's look at Hebrews chapter 13, 17. Similarly, obey those, listen, who have the rule over you and be submissive. Who's that to? The flock. What's he tell the flock? Be submissive to who? 
the elders, the overseers. Why? Because they watch out for your souls as they who must give account. They must give account. And then it says, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. You say, why are we talking about elders now? We're talking about deacons. We're doing that for a reason. Because I want us to look at the scriptural model. And I want to ask you, is this the scriptural model? Is that the scriptural model? Obviously, deacons have authority. What do they have authority over? Because we know where the elders, the past, these are all different. These are synonyms for the same office, by the way. So if you see those words in scripture, pastor, bishop, or elder, it's all talking about the exact same office. They're not three different offices. They're all descriptions of the same thing. They're over the saints. We just read about that, right? Well, what are the deacons over? Are they over the saints? Do they have authority over the saints? No. In fact, you'll never see that in scripture, but they do have authority. So this is not the scripture model. What the scripture model is this, the elders still have authority over the deacons and the deacons have a authority over a designated area of responsibility in the church. That's what deacons are supposed to do. They're supposed to have authority over a designated area of responsibility. And that's what these men did. You know what happened when the apostles had them choose seven men and they laid their hands on them and appointed them as deacons? They let them work and they left and they went back to their work. You know why? Because they didn't have time to micromanage what these men were doing in the daily distribution. They had to worry about their work. And that's how the church is supposed to function. Elders are over the flock. Deacons are to help and assist and supplement the elders in their work and having authority over designated things regarding the church. Does that mean that the elders can't ask the deacons how their work's doing? No, that doesn't mean that at all. But do you see the purpose for deacons? It's to allow the ministry of the word to continue. And so they provide a valuable service in the church appointed over areas of business. Okay, and I want you to see the result of this. See the result of this. When these men started doing that job and the apostles were freed up to do their job in ministering in the word and prayer, it says, then the word of God spread. And the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The church was already getting really big, so big that it was causing the apostles some grief. But what's happening now? It's growing more. But guess what? They're not worried about that. You know why? Because they've got trustworthy men helping them in the ministry. And so it multiplies greatly. And even a great many of the priests, Jewish priests, were obedient to the faith. All right, so let's back up to verse 5. And this time we're, we're, we're done. We're done talking about deacons, okay? We're done with that. We're going to move on. We're going to talk about some other things that we want to draw to these passages about these seven men. Acts 6 verse 5, it says, The same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then it names these six other men. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And perhaps there was wisdom in ordaining a proselyte from Antioch. Maybe he would be more unbiased than some of the other men would be. Whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God spread, and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now listen to verse 8. And Stephen, this Stephen right here, a man full of what? Faith in the Holy Spirit is now full of faith and what? Power. And he does what? Many great wonders and signs among the people. You know, something's changed. Stephen was already a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Well, that was a qualification to be one of these men, to be appointed, right? That was a qualification. But now they laid their hands on them. And now he's full of faith, still, and power, and performing signs and wonders. Now go back and look through the first five chapters when you get a chance and notice something. 
Nobody else performed a miracle but the apostles until right here. What's changed? This right here. The apostles prayed and they laid their hands on these men. I'll tell you, this is a problem in the world today because we've got people that, that get up on a stage and they'll tell you, oh, you just put a little money in there and we'll help you out. And they've got people planted out in the crowd that will have some illness and they'll come up and it'll be, it's always something that nobody can verify. It's something like diabetes or high blood pressure. Maybe they got a limp in their leg and all of a sudden they walk up with their limp and this guy waves his hand and says something. Boy, they hop around, jump around. You've seen that stuff, haven't you? You believe that? Well, why don't you believe that? You must just not have enough faith. No, it has nothing to do with that. You know how people got the ability to perform those miracles? In Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out on the apostles. That gave them miraculous power. How do we see others getting miraculous power throughout the New Testament? This right here. The apostles were a medium for that, if you will. They would put their hands on somebody and they would impart spiritual gifts to a person. And no one else did that. I want to show you something about Philip. We read about Philip here. Let's go read about Philip for a moment because Philip doesn't stay in Jerusalem after the persecution starts and Saul starts wreaking havoc in the church. Philip ends up in Samaria. And then Philip, as he's in the city of Samaria, he goes there and he preaches Christ to them. And the multitudes, it says, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip. That is, they were listening to him, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So it wasn't just Stephen, but Philip, who also had his hands laid on him here from Acts 6, was able to perform miracles, right? That's obvious. Unclean spirits, it says, with a loud voice cried out and came out of many who were possessed with them. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. He wasn't like Benny Hinn. This, this is real. It's legitimate. This guy's performing actual miracles. How? Because the apostles laid their hands on him. Could Philip pass those gifts on? Could he? Well, let's look. Now, when the apostles were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Philip preaches the gospel. He's performing miracles to confirm the word that he's preaching. People are believing that word. They're seeing what he's doing, and they're converted to Christ. They're converted. And then what happens? Well, then Peter and John hear about it. And so they go up to Samaria. You know, it's not like it was a day drive. This is a pretty good trip up to Samaria. And why'd they go there? So these people could receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he had fallen upon none of them. But why didn't Philip just do that? Why did Peter and John have to leave Jerusalem and come all the way to Samaria so that these people could, be, could have uh, miraculous gifts? Well, let's read on in the chapter a little bit further. It says, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Who's they? That's Peter and John. Peter and John. They laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now listen to verse 18. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that on anyone whom I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. What did Simon see? Simon saw that through the laying on of whose hands? The apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given. That's why John and Peter went up there. Because Philip, while he could perform miracles, could not impart them to others. That was solely designated to the apostles. In fact, Paul, as an apostle, had this as well. Listen to Romans chapter 1 and verse 11. Paul said, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That word established means strengthened. 
What's Paul saying? I want to come where you're at. Why? So he could lay hands on them and impart those gifts. Well, why couldn't Paul just send someone else? Because he's an apostle. It's his job. It's his lot. Why couldn't he just pray to the Lord for it to fall him? Because that's not how it worked. They were physically present. They put their hands on someone. They imparted those gifts. And he said, I want to come and see you so that I can do that. Acts chapter 19, verses 5, another instance, our last instance we'll look at tonight. It says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. You're not going to see anybody else who had the power to put hands on someone and impart miraculous gifts. While many people had gifts, it was the apostles that could do that and no one else. You know what? I said earlier that we don't really have people that can do that today because there's no living apostles. They had their own qualifications. They had to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. I don't mean witnesses like they were witnessing two people. I mean they had to have seen the resurrected Christ. They had to have seen him. These men who were apostles in that day were chosen by Jesus Christ himself, including Matthias when they cast lots. Who made that choice? God did. These men were chosen by God for this work, and it was only their work. And there's a reason why. There's a reason why. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is where I said the text may be a little small for you in the back, so I apologize. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 through 13. It says, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, what is he talking about here? Let's, let's grab a little context. And we're not going to take time to read this, but I want to grab a little context. And you go study this out for yourself tonight. What's been going on through this letter to Corinth? He's been identifying all the problems in their church, hasn't he? They've had division and envy. They've been defrauding one another. They've been glorifying unsinful things. This is the chapter about love. And why is it the chapter about love? Because love is going to solve all their problems. Every one of their problems is going to be solved through agape love, through biblical love. Now, why is he talking about gifts here? Why does he bring up gifts? If you go toward the end of chapter 12, what you're going to see is they were envying one another over the diversity of gifts that they had. Some were coveting the best gifts. And so he ends that chapter, chapter 12, by saying, covet earnestly the best gifts, but yet I show you a more excellent way. You know why? Because they thought gifts were going to solve their problems. So what's he saying here? Love does not fail. You know what that word fail is? It's the exact same word that's translated done away right here love doesn't fail but you know what does what will fail prophecy tongues and knowledge what kind of knowledge what kind of tongues miraculous and here's what he says we know in part and we prophesy in part did you know even paul is speaking of himself there paul didn't have full knowledge he didn't have complete revelation he said well, what do you mean well did he know what john knew no John was the only one given that revelation, what, but we do. We know what John knows. Why? Because we have the complete revelation of God. And here's what he's saying. Knowledge and prophecy are right now partial. 
But when that which is perfect, that word means complete. So here's what's partial, but something's coming that's complete. And when the complete comes, the partial will be done away. That is, it will fail. What was the partial? Prophecy and knowledge. What's he saying? The gifts are going to cease. The gifts, the spiritual gifts that you're envying each other over. The gifts that you're coveting. Those things have their time, but they're going to be done away with when we have a completeness of prophecy and knowledge. And then he uses this analogy. So don't get confused. Paul's not making some, telling some story about him being a kid. He's making an analogy about maturity and youth. And he's talking about the church. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What's he saying? <clears throat> the church is young and the church is immature. And the church needs these things. They're childish things. They're for a child. You need these things right now. You need the gifts to establish you and to strengthen you. But there's coming a time when you won't need the gifts. When the church is mature, when we have complete knowledge. And he says, now about faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, here's the thing. After these gifts are gone, you know what still abides? Faith, hope, and love. They still abide. But love is the greatest. You know why? Because love abides forever. Because when we are resurrected, when we see Jesus, faith is realized. Hope is realized. There is no more faith than hope. It's realized. We don't hope for what we see. But love abides forever. It's eternal. So it's the greatest. It never fails. The gifts were instituted for the work of establishing and strengthening the church until it no longer needed them. And once the word of God was canonized, when it was complete, when it was in the hands of God's people, the gifts were no longer needed. And so they were done away around the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 6, 9 through 10. So we're moving on. We're going to go through the rest of this real quick. Like I said, there's not a lot to dive into here. <coughs> so as Stephen starts performing miracles and the word of God is spreading... It says, Then there arose some from which is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now I read today, I was reading today about the synagogues in Jerusalem, and they estimate that there was around 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. That, that's a lot. So why is this particular synagogue highlighted here? Well, this synagogue was unique in that it wasn't always full that when people would come in for the feast, they had a synagogue for the freedmen, the, liberti the libertines, that were from these areas who would utilize this synagogue for their public worship. They were the ones that stood up, they rose up, and they disputed with Stephen. Well, they're not the ones that are going to carry out everything we're going to see in the next chapter, but these are the ones that started the fight, if you will. But it says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So they, they started a dispute with him, and then he kicked their tail. That's what happened. They, they had no leg to stand on. Why? Because he's being guided by God. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. These freedmen, these libertines, are causing some problems here for Stephen. They've, they've convinced some people to say that he's blaspheming God and Moses. And he didn't. He didn't do that. But because they were able to find people that would accuse him with that, well, now he's got to go before the council. And so you remember the council. We read about the council before with Annas and Caiaphas and how Peter and John were brought before the council, before the high priest. So that's exactly what's going to happen now to Stephen. So it says they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, I want to ask you a question. I'm not looking for an audible response here, but I want, to, I want you to think about something. This right here is not true, is it? This is not true. He wasn't speaking evil against Moses or God. That's what the word blasphemous word means, evil against. He wasn't speaking against Moses evil or God evil. But notice what they accused him of. We heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. He probably did. You know why? Because that's what Jesus taught. <laughs> that's exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, and also in Luke 21 and Luke 17. He teaches those very things. And so it's very possible that that is what Stephen was telling them. But that's a problem for these people because they're twisting this into something that's malevolent and wicked and evil. And what was, what was happening there? They were all looking at him, and it says they saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, I wish I knew exactly what that meant. I don't know if it means that his face was shining brightly like, with glory like Moses. I don't know if it means that they just saw him as innocent and blameless. But I will tell you this. He did not look like a guilty man. He didn't look like a guilty man of the council. And that's our stopping point tonight. So you're going to have to come back for Acts chapter 7 and see the, how this unfolds. Most of you probably already know. But, but they're going to continue to try Stephen, and he's going to get his day to speak to them. I hope you've enjoyed the study tonight. Uh, I want to encourage you to go home, study these things for yourself. Again, look into these things uh, for yourself. If you'd like to study them further, uh, get with one, uh, one of us, and we'd be glad to do that. Uh, if there's someone tonight that is subject to the gospel call, if you've never become a Christian, would like to become one at this time, or if you need the prayers of the church for any reason at all, we ask that you come and have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing a song that's been selected. <coughs>